Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always, except for last week, is Colleen. How are you feeling, Colleen? I'm feeling a lot better. I just wanted to say thank you to Nicole for being able to stand in so last minute. Yeah. We really tried to record last week, but my voice was just completely gone. You know, there might be some test recordings left over, but just trust me, it was bad. (laughs) Um, But I'm feeling a lot better. You know, I just kind of let myself rest, and fingers crossed this means I don't get sick later in flu season. But uh, other than that, I've been good. We've been doing some cool behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah. Uh, we'll, hopefully, we'll be able to bring to you soon, you know, maybe a crossover episode mm-hmm. with one of our pod besties. Uh, but we'll let you know soon. How are you, Eileen? Uh, good. And yes, thank you, Nicole, for stepping in. She's awesome like that. Um, you know, nothing much. Went on a ride Sunday. I know I say I ride or I rode my motorcycle a lot. But as our motorcycle listeners know, like Sean Patrick, he's in our group. And Sean, please come to California I will show you all the best roads in Northern California, I promise. Uh, Anyways, when you ride, it's kind of like all you talk about, so I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I got to get out there this weekend, which was nice, and just catching up, and I'm happy to be back recording with you. Oh, thank you. Um, So we wanted to kind of take a second and talk about something serious uh, to mention the events that have been taking place over the last week or week and a half in Charlottesville and beyond, because we were just really upset to see this happening in our country in 2017. Yeah, and I know we talk a lot about political things on the show, but they usually relate to the true crime topics we're discussing. However, I think we'd be remiss and not true to ourselves if we didn't take a second to condemn the violent actions of the participants of the Unite the Right rally. And our hearts go out to the counter-protesters that were injured and to Heather Heyer, who lost her life. Until we can have an open conversation where we call out hate speech and white supremacy and Nazi ideology, we're going to see more instances of what happened in Charlottesville. And we encourage anyone who agrees not to sit idly by because you know we can't be silent in the face of oppression. And I don't know, we were really heartened to see how many people turned out in Boston this past weekend. It shows you what happens when we all band together. We can drown out the hateful minority. So I don't know. Thank you guys for giving us a minute to say that. I know we all come from a variety of different political backgrounds, but I believe this is something we all can stand together on. Yeah, thank you. You know, we just felt like we needed to say something. Mm -hmm. Um, But with that, let's get into this week's case. This week, we're going to discuss one of the most notorious missing persons cold cases in San Francisco. This case happened over 33 years ago, and police are no closer to finding out what happened than they were when he actually went missing. On the evening of February 10th, 1984, 10-year-old Kevin Collins was on his way home from basketball practice. Witnesses reported seeing him waiting for the bus at around 6.30, talking to a tall man, but Kevin never made it home that night, and since that night in February, he's never been seen again. 
The early and mid-80s marked an increase in interest of missing children, particularly children who were victims of stranger abductions. Adam Walsh had been kidnapped a couple of years earlier, and a movie about his kidnapping and murder was released shortly before Kevin's disappearance. Kevin's picture went nationwide and was circulated on billboards, milk cartons, and magazine covers. And his case is used as an example of how parents could better protect their children from stranger abductions. And police use this case to learn how to better address missing children reports and increase their chances of recovery. Despite the widespread attention, few leads came in regarding Kevin, and months turned to years, and eventually his family accepted the fact that he probably was not coming back. So who took Kevin and what happened to him? This week, we're going to discuss Kevin's disappearance and what transpired in the three decades that he's been missing. Kevin Andrew Collins was born January 24, 1974. He was one of nine children who lived in San Francisco with his mother, Anne, and his father, David. He was described as a sweet boy who shied away from talking to strangers. He was from a working-class family living on Sutter Street in the Western Edition neighborhood of San Francisco, and his dad worked as a truck driver and his mom worked as a secretary. The Western Edition underwent a significant cultural change after World War II, as did much of San Francisco and California in general. But by the 1980s, the Western Edition was home to many working-class families and was a more ethnically diverse neighborhood compared to some of the bordering neighborhoods. There was also a fair amount of poverty and crime that affected the area, especially in the mid-80s. Since the early 2000s, the Western Edition has undergone rapid gentrification, and the neighborhood today does not look like what it did when Kevin lived there. For most of his childhood, Kevin and the younger siblings banded together and were inseparable. In 1984, Kevin was a 10-year-old fourth grader at St. Agnes School, located in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. For those of you who aren't familiar with San Francisco's neighborhood, Haight-Ashbury borders the Western Edition to the Southwest. On February 10th, Kevin attended school at St. Agnes, and he normally went with his brother, who's two years older, but his older brother was homesick that day. After school let out, he went to basketball practice in the school's gymnasium, and he ended up leaving early from practice. Coaches who saw him estimated that he left sometime between 6.10 and 6.30, and I mean, 20 minutes is unfortunately, you know, you could cover probably a lot of ground Mm -hmm. in 20 minutes, depending on what time he actually left the gymnasium. Nobody's really sure where he went after until he was, you know, last seen, but so who knows, you know, what he did when he left the school or who he ran into. Mm Mm-hmm. There was another confirmed sighting of Kevin about a half an hour later, around 6.50, waiting for the 43-line bus on the corner of Oak Street and Masonic Avenue. If you're thinking that it's strange for a 10-year-old to take the city bus alone, that wasn't normally how he got home from school. His 12-year-old brother went everywhere with him, but like we said, he was homesick that day. So Kevin's other option for a ride home was to pile in the coach's van with all the other kids, However, it's speculated that Kevin didn't want to go into the van because he was alone and he might have been intimidated by some of the older kids. And he must have been familiar with the bus route, you know, took it every day with his brother, but he probably didn't take it alone often. It's like I can't imagine that if he's never taken the bus before, he would feel, you know, more comfortable getting on a city bus alone than he would in a van full of kids. Right. So, I mean, he must have some familiarity with the bus system, but I doubt he was taking the bus alone, even in 1984 at at 10. That's a little young. Yeah, it's a little young. So he probably just, oh, this once, I'll do it, you know. Witnesses who saw him at the bus stop said that he was talking to a tall, blonde-haired man who had a black dog. 
No one saw or noticed where he went or if he got on the bus, and he did not come home and he was never seen or heard from again. His parents were concerned when he didn't come home, but this was 1984, and we've discussed this and other cases, especially in the San Mateo Slasher, where police weren't as quick to act when a child was reported missing as they are today. Police and sometimes even parents believed that their children were out with friends and lost track of time and, you know, would return home eventually. In the case with one of the victims in the San Mateo Slasher, it was not uncommon for her to be gone for several days at a time and police didn't even take a runaway report. It was Kevin's case that began to change the way of thinking and change how law enforcement responds to and treats missing or runaway children. Now, it's by no means perfect, but it has moved forward from where it was in the 80s and police generally react quicker when the child is missing. Now a message from our sponsor, Kind. Like I said, we are so happy to welcome our very first sponsor, Kind. Not only do they make amazing and healthy snacks with ingredients you can pronounce, they support a lot of causes and give back to the community through the Kind Foundation. And that's important to us. But if you're ready to try some tasty, healthy snacks, we have an offer for our misconduct listeners. You can try 10 Kind bars for free and all you have to do is pay for the shipping. Go to www.kindsnacks.com slash misconduct and order the sampler box. This will also enroll you in the Kind Snack Club where you'll receive monthly snacks at a discount and get member-only bonuses. The free sample box comes with some amazing flavors like my favorites, oats and honey, peanut butter, and the roasted jalapeno, which I can only get by being a member because that one's not sold around me. I really like the apple mango and pineapple banana pressed fruit bars, and those are in the free sample box, which is great. So head over to kindsnacks.com slash misconduct, and we want to give a huge thank you to Kind for sponsoring us. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you're actually supporting us. So give Kind a try, and hey, get 10 free snacks while you're at it. At the time of Kevin's disappearance, he had just turned 10 years old, and he was four foot six and weighed 72 pounds. He is white with brown hair and gray-green eyes. He was last seen wearing a white shirt, a green sweater, and brown corduroy pants. And today he would be 43 years old. We'll have a picture on our Instagram and our website of Kevin at the time he went missing, and also an age-progressed picture of him that shows what he might have looked like at age 39. Both are also available on the Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website. Kevin's parents immediately knew something was wrong when their son didn't come home, and posters with his face and a number to call were posted all over his neighborhood. They were posted on telephone poles and storefronts almost as soon as he was reported missing. Flyers went out with his information and who to contact if anyone had seen him, and neighbors joined the search and handed them out all over San Francisco. Soon the city was papered with images of Kevin's face, but besides the sighting on the bus stop, no new leads came in that were taken seriously by the police. In 1984, we didn't have Amber Alerts, and the most common way to get your story out there to a lot of people at once was to try to get on national news or get into a major print outlet. Kevin's case was lucky enough to generate interest on a national level, and soon his missing poster was featured on billboards and milk cartons before being run on the cover of Newsweek. Once the case went national, tips began pouring in again, but SFPD didn't publicly pursue any. After this, no new leads were announced, and the case went cold. 
After the abduction, the family tried to move forward, but it was understandably difficult. In a 10-year check-in on the case, an article quoted Kevin's mom saying that the family had accepted that Kevin had died. The younger kids, that included Kevin, used to run around the neighborhood together, but after the abduction, they were afraid to even leave the apartment. Understandably, the kids all suffered emotionally after the disappearance and struggled to accept what had happened to him, and they had trouble sleeping and were afraid to leave the house for extended periods of time, and their grades slipped. David channeled his grief into continuing the search for his son, and when leads grew cold, he worked to help other parents look for their missing children as well. Anne and David eventually separated and divorced in the years after Kevin went missing, and on the 10-year anniversary of the disappearance, the family created a memorial bench for Kevin in the Holy Cross Cemetery. It had a picture of Kevin and forever in our hearts engraved on the bench. For the next 20 years, the only news coverage the case received was articles commemorating the anniversaries of Kevin seemingly vanishing into thin air, but that was until 2005 when a man applied for a passport in the Bay Area using the name and information of Kevin Collins. He used his own photo, but he used the name and personal information of Kevin. He had information like Kevin's parents' names, Kevin's birthday, and his social security number. A State Department clerk who was local to the area saw the application and remembered some of the details of Kevin's disappearance, and this caused her to take a second look at the application, and then she became suspicious that the man applying for the passport was not who he said he was on the application, so she alerted the authorities. Kevin's mother and sister were shown the picture of the man who put in the application, but neither of them knew who he was. They both confirmed that the other information on the application did belong to their son and brother, Kevin. The man was eventually identified as Bazad Mofrad. He was 40 years old, so a little older than Kevin's birthday would make him, and had previously lived in the East Bay in Pinal and San Ramon. He pled guilty to counts of fraud for trying to obtain a passport illegally, and he was actually on bail when he applied for the passport for other fraud charges, so he was already known to law enforcement. According to Mafrad, he did not know who Kevin was and didn't know that he was a high-profile missing person in the 1980s, and he said he found Kevin's name in an online database of missing children. When he pled guilty in court, he apologized to Kevin's family. His mother said in response, quote, I'm glad he said he's sorry, but I think he's just sorry he got caught. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's despicable that he stole the only thing Kevin had left, his name. Kevin never got to work. Kevin never got to drive a car, but this thief comes along and wants to steal his name so he can escape the law. Mofrad was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison and was ordered to pay $700,000 in restitution and court costs. 
And I mean, just what an idiot. You know, know, this kid's picture is plastered all over the country. There's Google in 2005. Like, yeah. You know, I don't know. I, somebody awful. was bound to recognize him. Seriously. Yeah. And it's just awful to do to the family, too. How painful would that be to, to have that brought up? Oh, I know. Be alerted. You know, the cops call you. Somebody tried to get a passport in your missing son's name. Yeah. I, it's do you it's know awful who this to guy think about. Is? Yeah. And, you know, and then maybe even the possibility that. Well, how does he have Kevin's information? You know, and then you, I don't know. I feel like it could play to that like little glimmer of hope Mm -hmm. you might be holding on to. It's it's awful to think about. Really And awful to do to a family. Yeah. The case went cold again until early 2013. SFPD held a press conference to announce that they had new information on a person of interest in Kevin's disappearance. Daniel Leonard Therian lived in the neighborhood where Kevin was last seen in the 1980s. And he used several aliases during his lifetime, including Raymond William Stewart, Kelly Lee Dawson, Kelly Sean Stewart, and Wayne Jackson. Wayne Jackson was the name that he was using when he was living in San Francisco. Therian has a felony record for kidnapping and lewd actions on a minor from an incident in Canada and a 1984 incident in San Francisco. The San Francisco incident is not related to Kevin Collins. In 1973, he was arrested in Canada under the name Raymond William Stewart for the kidnapping and sexual assault of two 13-year-old boys. After he was named a suspect, he went on the run and he was never actually apprehended by Canadian authorities, so he never stood trial for the charges relating to this crime. In 1984, he was arrested under the name Wayne Jackson in connection to an incident where a seven-year-old boy was kidnapped and molested at Fisherman's Wharf. Fisherman's Wharf is one of the most popular tourist attractions in San Francisco. In the 1980s, Therian was tall, had blonde hair, and owned a black dog. And if that description sounds familiar, that's because Therian fits the description of the man last seen talking to Kevin at the bus stop when he disappeared. It was also revealed that SFPD had searched the house Therian had been living in at the time Kevin went missing, and cadaver dogs alerted in the basement, and the concrete was removed and sent for testing. Underneath the concrete, they found bones and sent those for testing as well. All those tests showed that the bones were not human and they belonged to an animal, most likely a dog. The press conference was held so SFPD could ask the public to come forward with any information they might have about Dan Therian or any of his aliases. They did not elaborate on the connection that Therian had to Kevin other than his sex offender status and proximity to the location where Kevin disappeared. They also stopped short of calling him a suspect and only referred to him as a person of interest. Therian died in 2008, so if he is responsible, charges will not be brought up against him. And I don't know, I think it's, it's probably a pretty good option. He was in the area and has a, has the criminal background, really, right? I just don't think that there's anything that ties him directly to Kevin's disappearance. Right. And since he's dead, I don't know that they'll find anything necessarily, that yeah. they, you know. Unless they got some miraculous, like, physical evidence. Right. Yeah, which unfortunately probably won't happen. Yeah, and that's just unfortunate that they have this name, mm-hmm. you know, 30-some-odd years down the line and not, you know, at the time. In December 2015, a woman was gardening in the planter boxes outside of her house in Alamo Square. She was changing out the soil in the planter that had been installed by a previous tenant years earlier when she discovered a human bone. So these planter boxes are in front of her house, but they're on the street, so they're not really on her property. Mm -hmm. Alamo Square is kind of just like a nice part of San Francisco. 
The planter boxes along the street were searched, and they found multiple human bones and several planters. Anthropologists and police were called in, and they eventually found two sets of human remains. One belonged to an adult, and the other belonged to a child that was estimated to be between 8 and 14 years old. It's not known when the bones were put in the planters or how old the bones are. The first person who came to mind when this discovery was reported was Kevin Collins, and I've tried to find an update on these remains. However, not much has been reported since early 2016. I would hope that SFPD would have already tested them against Kevin's DNA or the DNA in his family, but I couldn't find anywhere that said for certain that they ruled Kevin out. I'll keep a lookout for any updates on this weird discovery. It seems that you know, the San Francisco Police Department is playing their cards close to the chest and not releasing any additional information or updates on these bones. I don't think that they're Kevin because I feel like they mm. would have wanted to close that case because it is a high profile cold case. But, yeah. you know, it, it's just it was weird. It was like the discovery was announced and then it went away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's I don't know. That's kind of wild. And I don't remember hearing that much actually anything about it at all, um, you know. Again, like you said, we were trying to find anything we could, but came up empty. So there's not a ton of news articles to begin with. And I mean, it just, it's kind of a big thing in general to find in San Francisco in 2016, right? I was surprised by the lack of articles I found. It was like the announcement and then the announcement that it was two sets of remains. And the one was a child. And then all the articles are like, is it Kevin Collins? Mm -hmm. You know? But after that, it just seems like the information dries up and there's really not much more to report. Yeah. So it it didn't even really say, you know, like, how old are these bones? How did these bones get here? Are they victims of homicide? Like, none of that information is out there. It was just that, like, here are these bones that we found in a planter in a kind of ritzy-ish part of San Francisco. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So for final thoughts, I I think stranger abduction is probably every person's worst nightmare and specifically any parent's worst nightmare, right? Yeah. You know, there's something that's so scary about it because it's something you feel like can happen to you or somebody you love and there's nothing you can do to prevent it. It's just kind of like you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them seem to end in tragedy or a lot of the high profile ones seem to end in tragedy and it's probably why they get a lot of news coverage. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was younger, there were two cases that just terrified me as a kid, and they were local to where I grew up, so I remember seeing a lot of news coverage. The first was Danielle Van Dam, who was kidnapped from her house north of San Diego and found murdered several weeks later in the desert. Later, law enforcement found out that she had been kidnapped by her neighbor, and he's now sitting on death row in San Quentin. The other case happened that same year, just a few months later, and that was the abduction and murder of Samantha Runyon. She was kidnapped in broad daylight playing in her front yard with her friend in Orange County and found murdered the next day. There's actually there's a podcast called California Dreaming, and they did an episode that interviews Samantha's mom Mm -hmm. and they discuss the foundation that her mom runs in Samantha's honor. And so hearing the update about the case, especially when I followed the news at the time that it happened, was kind of it was really interesting and really cool to kind of get a like, yeah, where is this case now update? And I was older than both of the girls, but for some reason, I was not old enough to probably be reading all the news I was reading, <laughs> but I was. You're into true crime. <laughs> but I, you know, so I wasn't old enough to fully grasp, I guess, the nuances of the case. So basically, there was a period of time in 2002 where I was terrified I was going to be taken from my room in the middle of the night. Yeah, who wouldn't, though, that young? You know? Yeah, so I know how rare stranger abductions are, but there's a real palpable fear that they cause when they do happen. And 
I think that fear spurs action like it did in the 80s. And I grew up being taught a lot of the things that only came about as a result of abductions like Kevin's. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I don't know, to me, though, I, I think stranger abduction or, you know, stranger danger has gotten more attention and is more on people's minds, too, because, you know, not only these cases, but we also have access to way more information these days. Um, things that weren't nationwide news never really got out of the town you were in before the Internet you know, not that long ago and, you know, not that long before you were really running around, you know, Colleen, I I was, you know, the same as a kid and I didn't have as much information at my fingertips. So, you know, I didn't have the information and the fear about, you know, running around and walking to the store, but I was still, you know, taught the basics, like don't talk to strangers, don't get into cars and things like that. Um, But like you said, these incidents spurred action. And now we have on top of that, all this access to information where you can see all these things that, you know, happen probably more frequently than people maybe realized did before, but they've actually been happening just as frequently as just now we know about it, you know? Um, And that's, you know, not a bad thing. And while that extensive coverage is good, it is once again subject to reporting that is not evenly applied across all racial and socioeconomic lines. This leaves out so many children who don't get their faces on the news in the same way that other children do. And you'd think with the advent of the internet and, Again, the access to the information that I mentioned, you would see more, but you don't. And I, I know we talk about that a lot, but I think it's always important to remember that for every kid you see getting a lot of news coverage, there's probably three missing kids that you don't even hear about. A really good example of a tragically overlooked case is covered by the Fall Line podcast. It is a long-form podcast that investigates the disappearance of twin teenage girls in 1990. And if you haven't already listened, I highly suggest checking it out. I really liked that podcast mm-hmm. a lot. And I, Very good. Yeah, I would have never heard of that case otherwise. And just yeah. And the yeah, circumstances. I think you would, but yeah. Yeah, circumstances of why it was just like not really reported on or investigated on or just heartbreaking. It's but awful. Yeah. They've done a lot of really good work, I think, getting the name out there. Yeah. So Fallline Podcast. Yeah. Fallline Podcast. Um, as for the resolution to Kevin's case, I do think that Kevin is dead and probably died shortly after he went missing. Yeah. But I do hope that remains can be found so the family can have closure. But then again, it's been so long, I'm not sure how likely that is. Yeah, neither. And that wraps us up for today's case. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we want to say a quick thank you to our new Patreons. Thank you, Roseanne, and the Murder Road Trip podcast for your pledges. Patreon helps us out a lot, and it allows us to bring more content and better content to you guys. Mm-hmm. So thank you. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon rewards, head on over to patreon.com slash misconductpodcast and check it out. Also, we're about a week behind schedule sending out rewards. So if you haven't gotten yours yet, hang tight. I know yeah. I keep mentioning Sorry. it, but I was sick. <laughs> uh, but it being sick through just a complete monkey wrench and like my whole schedule uh, between our podcast and our day jobs. We're both just really behind, but never fear your rewards are on their way. And it's not just, yeah, it's same here, just busy with work and yeah, sick and it's just, it all compounds. So we apologize, but they're getting out. (laughs) Everything fell apart. (laughs) It does. It's crazy. But we also have a couple of five-star reviews to thank and thank you to our statin. Leslie and Utilitarian Femme, love it, for your feedback. We really appreciate you taking the time to review the show. I know Apple Podcasts sometimes makes you jump through hoops to leave feedback. So thank you very much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. And 
If you're liking the show and want to help us out, go ahead and leave a review for us. Reviews help the show out, and we love reading all your feedback. And that's it for this week. That wraps us up for another episode of Misconduct. Thank you so much for joining us. Head over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. What do you think happened to Kevin? You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Misconduct Pod. And we also want to give a shout out to the Blink Tapes for our intro and outro music. So be sure to check them out on Bandcamp to listen for more of their music. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at misconductpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to listen through to the end of the trailer for one of our pod friends. We mentioned them earlier in this episode. And if you want, you should head over and give them a listen. And we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Roseanne, and I'm the creator and host of California Dreaming, True Crime Tales from the Golden State. Like many of you, I have a long-standing fascination with mysteries, crime, and justice. I bring you a different story each week that involves an event with the California Connection. I have a few episodes up that are available for download on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. I tell my stories with a quiet intensity, something to listen to when you need to get your true crime fix, but also need to wind down. So check it out when you have a moment. California Dreaming, True Crime Tales from the Golden State. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.